Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My turn at least to welcome you here to Bay Area. If you are a guest of ours, we are honored to have you with us this morning. And I want you all to try to use your imagination a little bit this morning. I want you to imagine that you are the grand prize winner in a national uh, uh, prize and your award is $86,400 put into your private bank account every single day. Every single day you receive $86,400 as the grand prize winner. However, there are a few rules to the prize contest. Um, Everything you don't spend during each day would be withdrawn from your account. So at the end of the day, everything that's left over is taken out. You can't transfer money into another account. You can only spend what's in your account that day. Every morning when you wake up, the bank opens your account with another $86,400 for that day. However, the bank can end the game without warning at any time. It can simply say, game over and close the account. What would you do with that? What would you do with $86,400 in your account every day that you knew whatever you didn't spend was going to be taken away? You'd spend it, right? You'd buy everything you could buy. You'd, you'd spend it on yourself. You'd spend it on people that you know and people that you love. You'd probably spend it on people that you don't know because you could never spend that much money in a day, right? You know, every single day, another $86,400. Actually, we all are winners in this contest. We just don't realize it. And the prize isn't money, and most of you probably know where I'm going here. The prize is time. We are given 86,400 seconds every single day of our lives constitutes one day. Every second that we don't use is withdrawn from our account. They don't roll over into the next day. We can't transfer time. We can't save time. We can only spend it. So every morning when we wake up, we have access to another 86,400 seconds that make up that day. However, it can end at any time. It can be game over and the account is closed. So what do you do with all those seconds? Because remember, how we live our moments is how we live our lives. What are we going to do with all those seconds that we've been given? We have begun this year, 2019, here at Bay Area, talking about being much more intentional when it comes to telling other people about Jesus. We have been convinced that we are commanded, we're compelled to tell other people the good news of Jesus, to be witnesses for Jesus. And for two months, we have been talking about ways to do that. We have been talking about telling people our Jesus story, praying for our servers, uh, focusing more on starting a conversation uh, with Jesus at the center of that conversation. This past week, I was able to tell my Jesus story again. And I know a lot of you were as well, because a lot of you have told me that. A lot of you have told me the conversations that you've had just this past week. A lot of you have told me about praying for your server this past week. And the conversation, that sort of spurred and kind of where God took that. In fact, a couple weeks ago out in our lobby, 
I had a third grader find me, young third grade guy, uh, it was Briggs. And he said, hey, I've got a question for you. I'd never spoken to this young man before. He said, I've got a question for you. Okay. He said, one of my best friends is a Muslim. How do I talk to him about Jesus? He's coming from a third grader. And we had a conversation about that. And I thought, okay, this young man, he's paying attention. Here's a young man that's thinking. He's, he's trying to understand how can I spend my 86,400 seconds you know, to, to kind of point people to Jesus. He was thinking about that. I hope, I hope you are as well. And I'll say it again. We want to be a group of people who talk about Jesus a lot. But we don't want to just talk about Jesus. We want to show people the love of Jesus. And we want to show people the blessings and the promises of a life spent following Jesus. We want people to know, but we also want people to grow. That's why we go. See what I did there? In two weeks, we're going to start a, a series through the book of Acts. Remember, it was in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus told his disciples, You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends the world. And then for 26 chapters, we read about how that first century church actually took that command and went and were a witness to and for Jesus. So it sort of makes sense if we're talking about witnessing that we go back and take a look at how that early church got traction and how the early church carried out that command. So in two weeks, we're going to be starting a, a study through the book of Acts. But for this week and next week, I want to spend a little bit of time kind of bridging where we were and where we're headed. As we start discussing how those first century Christians became witnesses, how they introduced people to Jesus. And it started with a realization and a, a commitment that Jesus was going to be the most important thing in their lives. Take a look at what Paul writes to the, the church in Colossae as he describes Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see. Kings, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities. Everything's been created through Him and for Him. He existed before everything else began and He holds all creation together. Christ is the head of the church, which is His body. He's the first of all who rise from the dead, so He is first in everything. Paul describes Jesus as being sovereign. Sovereign over creation, sovereign over the church, even sovereign over death. Paul says Jesus is first in everything. And our struggle today is not that we don't put Jesus, give Jesus any place in our lives. We give Jesus a place in our lives. I mean, we all love Jesus. We're here because we love Jesus. I don't have any doubt that you love Jesus. We're happy to give Jesus a place in our life. We just struggle with giving Him first place in our life. We'll turn some things over to Jesus, but when it comes to turning everything over to Jesus, we're a little hesitant to do that. Do you know what the most often mentioned sin is in Scripture? The sin of idolatry is mentioned more, talked about more, cautioned against more frequently, condemned more often than any other sin in Scripture. 
the sin of idolatry. And that might give you a little bit of comfort. Because you might be thinking, well, I don't have a golden calf at my house. I don't have any, you know, sculpture that I bow down to. I don't have a graven image. We'll go Old Testament, you know, King James. I don't have a graven image that I bow down to. But in the Bible, idolatry goes much, much deeper than that. In fact, I would be able to argue that idolatry is really the root of all sin. Because the definition of idolatry really is just putting something first that shouldn't be first. That's idolatry. When we put something in the place of God, when I allow anything or anyone other than God to be my primary focus, the Bible calls it idolatry. So any other call, any other agenda besides God's call and God's agenda, that's idolatry. So it's not enough for me to say, well, Jesus is my Lord, and then relegate Him to some other place in my life other than first place. We've got to take those 86,400 seconds and make daily decisions to do what's necessary to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Beginning in verse 51, there is a uh, significant transition that goes on in the book of Luke. Starting with this verse and moving on, there's, there's this transition. That verse reads, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That verse is what theologians call the travel narrative. It begins the travel narrative. From this time on, Jesus in the book of Luke, Jesus is going to be headed towards Jerusalem. In fact, six more times in the book of Luke, Luke is going to tell us that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. The time is drawing near for Jesus to be killed, and he knows it. And he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. So everything that Jesus says from this verse on in the book of Luke is written by someone, spoken by someone, who knows he's about to die pretty soon. And as he begins this journey towards Jerusalem, which he knows is going to end in the crucifixion, Jesus is going to start saying some of the most startling things that we read Jesus saying anywhere in Scripture. For example, just a couple of verses later, remember he's on his way to Jerusalem to die in Luke 9, 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What? Next verse. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow. Seems kind of harsh. Next verse. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Whoa! What's gotten into Jesus? Where's the love? Where's the compassion? Where's the patience? It's almost as if he's, he's trying to offend people, it sounds like. Now, when you think about it, Jesus never had a problem drawing crowds, did he? Jesus was always able to draw crowds. People flocked to Jesus. Of course they did. Why wouldn't they? He healed people. He fed people. He, he provided for people. Of course people wanted to be around Jesus. 
But Jesus wasn't really interested in drawing crowds. Jesus wasn't really interested in collecting spectators. What Jesus was after was disciples. And what Jesus was looking for were people who would follow him. So he comes with an invitation that's really very simple. Follow me. And Jesus' invitation still remains the same to us. Follow me. And that's about the point where a lot of people start pumping the brakes a little bit. Okay, we like to talk about Jesus. We'll study Jesus. We'll sing about Jesus. We'll worship Jesus. But when he says, follow me, hmm. Let's think about that a little bit. Now, we've talked about this command before, follow me. And I don't think we have any problem with the me part. I don't think we have any problem with the Jesus part. We know it's Jesus, right? We know the answer is Jesus. We love Jesus. We believe Jesus. We worship Jesus. Those of us in this auditorium, we know it's Jesus. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not Joseph Smith. It's Jesus. We can agree on that. It's the follow part that we struggle with. Follow me. Because what we really would like to have is Jesus without the commandments. Christ without the conviction. That's what so many people are looking for. But that's not Jesus' invitation. Jesus has the promise, and we love the promise, that he takes people exactly where they are. No matter where you are, Jesus is going to accept you. And he's going to love you. And we love to think about and talk about that promise. But we're also told that Jesus isn't going to leave anyone, including us, where we are. He wants us to follow Him. So the result is that somehow we delude ourselves into thinking that Jesus came to give us a happy, easy, comfortable, no-problem life. Even though Jesus never said anything about that in Scripture even though I don't read in Scripture anything about a person who followed Jesus having this really easy, cushy life. But I do read where Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, whoever would come after me must deny himself comfort. And he doesn't say, whoever would come after me must deny himself wealth. Or must deny himself status. What Jesus says is, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Take up the cross daily and follow me. Follow me. Flip over to Luke chapter 14. He's still on his way to Jerusalem. Three times in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is going to use the same expression. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Next verse. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Next verse. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? 
For if he lays the foundations not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says it's going to cost something to follow me. He's very clear about that. It's going to cost something. There's no bait and switch when it comes to this equation. Jesus says there's a cost involved to following. So let's, let's get a little bit practical here. What does that exactly mean for us? And Jesus says, follow me. Let's start with the hard stuff here in Luke 14. First, Jesus says, I've got to come before friends and family. This is a hard one for us. Because we love our friends and we love our family. Rightfully so. You know, when Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, he was doing so against the wishes of his family. His mother, his brothers didn't want him to go. They didn't want him doing what he was doing. They didn't want him saying the things that he was saying, yet he goes anyway. And then verse 26 of Luke 14, let me read it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we wrestle with that verse. And we try to rationalize that verse. And what I've had so many people tell me is, well, when Jesus said, you've got to hate your father and mother, your wife and children, what he really meant was, you've got to love them less. But that's not what he said. If Jesus meant love them less, why didn't he say love them less? Let me, let me try an analogy with you. Maybe I've shared this before. Suppose a woman about my age came to me one day and said, Tim, I'm attracted to you. I would like to be your mistress. Now, I don't want you to get a divorce. Now, I'm not asking you to move in with me. I, I want you to still be with your wife. You can still love her. I'm not asking for all your heart. I'm just asking for some of your heart. I want you to spend some of your time with me. And I want some of your heart to be mine. How do you think my wife would respond to that kind of proposition? Martha, I'm not going to get a divorce. I still love you. I'm just going to spend some of my time with this other woman, and she's going to have some of my heart. I'll tell you how my wife would respond to that proposition. Martha would hate any relationship that diminished the affection that was reserved for her and her alone. Your spouse would too, rightfully so. There can be no other woman in my life in the context that I share with my wife. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, your family is a gift from God. Yes, your family is a tremendous blessing. But your family does not belong in the place reserved for Jesus. It's a hard teaching. 
But the irony is when we discover that when we put Jesus on the throne, when we follow Him and we put Him first in everything, we are blessed in everything, including family relationships. And I can't explain it exactly, but the closer I get to Jesus, the closer I get to my wife and my family and my children. I'm going to go against preacher logic and use my wife as a second example in one sermon. I'm living on the edge. Martha and I have been married for 36 years. And they have not all been, you know, green grass and high ties and, and easy going because like most men, I score pretty high on the dope scale. But in those 36 years, I can honestly say I have never lost one second of sleep wondering, might she leave me? It's never entered my mind. I've never thought for one second, would she cheat on me? It has never occurred to me that I might come home one day and have her say, that's it, I've had it, I, I can't take it anymore. That has never once crossed my mind. And it's not because of me. It is not because of me. I have given her plenty of reasons to be very frustrated in her marriage. But it's because my wife loves Jesus more than she loves me. And without a doubt, that is what I love most about her. Listen, I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a, I'm not a therapist. But if you're a young person thinking about you know, getting married someday, you're dating or whatever, the best advice I can give anyone is you find someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Because again, again the irony is that when I die to my family, when I die to the people that I love, when I put Jesus first, I'm able to live for them better. And again, it's completely counterintuitive, and I can't explain it. I just know that it works. And with Jesus, this is a non-negotiable. You can't put family in a spot where Jesus demands to be, and that's hard for us. And then Jesus says, I come before people, and I also come before stuff. He demands we place Him before our ambitions and our possessions. The second half of, of Luke 14, 33, any of you who does not give up everything He has cannot be my disciple. Again, this is a hard one, especially for us, especially for Americans, because we got a lot of stuff. We have a lot of possessions. Myself included, I got stuff. I, I got stuff that I like. My family would say, I, I have too much stuff. I never throw anything away. And we all have things that are important to us. And it's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to own things unless things start to own us. The issue of discipleship is directly linked to the issue of ownership. And I want you to hear that. Let me say that again. This issue of discipleship it is directly linked to the issue of ownership. Whose stuff is it? What are we doing with the things that God has blessed us with? Who owns our possessions? Following Jesus means putting Him before our ambitions, our possessions. And notice in Luke 14, Jesus didn't say you have to give away everything. He says you've got to give up everything. You've got to be willing to say, here it is, Jesus. 
No, I'm just a steward of what you've blessed me with. How can I use it? How can it bless someone else? Does anyone else need it? You know, let me know because Jesus, this stuff is not going to get in the way of my relationship with you. I'm told there's an old hymnal that had a song entitled Jesus Demands My All in the hymnal. And it apparently was a uh, very difficult song to sing. So there was an asterisk and a note at the bottom that said, for an easier version, see song number 247. So Jesus comes along and says, I do demand your all. And for years we've been asking, is there an easier version? But there isn't. There is no other version. Jesus absolutely demands our all. Jesus knew the cost. He knew the cost because He was on His way to Jerusalem to pay the cost. And He said, follow Me. So, the question this morning is, is it worth it? This idea of discipleship, this idea of following Jesus, is it worth it? And the answer to that question really depends on if you consider Jesus to be worth it or not. Again, Jesus isn't trying to hide anything. There is a cost. And the cost is very, very high. But I'm going to tell you the cost of not following Jesus is much, much higher. So, let me wrap up by asking you this. What is the second most important thing in your life? What do you consider the second most important thing in your life to be? Family? Friends, your kids, your grandkids, your marriage, your bank account, hobby. Notice I'm asking for the second most important thing because I know if I asked you what's the most important thing in your life, especially this morning, especially here, we'd all say Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. Absolutely. But I didn't ask that question. I asked what's the second most important thing in your life because whatever you identify as the second most important thing in your life is probably what you're struggling with to keep out of the place that Jesus demands to be. And it's probably a very good thing. It's probably a wonderful thing. But it can't be the main thing. The sin of idolatry. It has never been more alive and well than here in the 21st century. We have to recognize it for what it is. We have to repent of it. Ask God to help us to overcome it. Because we can talk about Jesus. We can sing about Jesus. We can tell our Jesus story. But we can't be a follower of Jesus and we can't truly be a disciple of Jesus until we put Him first in everything. 86,400 seconds of every day Jesus on the throne of our lives. So what do you struggle with when it comes to putting Jesus first? Well, you know, we begin by, by dying to sin. We do that through baptism. Maybe there's someone here this morning that's ready to be baptized or at least talk about it. And we die to self. Maybe this morning you just need the prayers of people who love you to help you put Jesus back in the position where He rightfully deserves to be. Listen, as a church family, if we can help you in any way, there'll be some people at the front of the auditorium, and you can meet us there. Let's stand and sing.